Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Canada 2020's No Second Chances, a project to examine what's working around the world to see more women rise to top political roles. My name is Kate Graham, and I'm delighted to be your host. At the outset of this season, I promised you a virtual trip around the world, and we've now visited every populated continent except one. And today, we're finally going to Africa. But in a continent with so many countries, well, where in Africa are we? Let me paint a picture for you. See if you can figure it out. Imagine an 80-million-year-old desert, the oldest in the world, in fact. Imagine walking this desert, all alone, without a soul in sight, step after step, on an almost electric, rusted iron, orange earth beneath your feet, formations shaped by the wind and baked by the scorching sun. Imagine an awe-inspiringly fierce coastline known as the Skeleton Coast, named for several thousand shipwrecks, as well as whale and sea bones that line the coast as markers of these unforgiving waters. Or imagine an incredible array of wild animals. Lions and elephants and giraffes and hippos and cheetahs, oh my! The country has many conservation areas to protect these animals' homes, including the largest wildlife sanctuary, Atosha National Park, with a salt pan so vast it is visible from space and provides a spectacular home to more than one million flamingos. So, have you figured it out? Today, we're in Namibia. And today, you're going to meet an incredibly inspiring woman, Namibia's Prime Minister, Sarah Kungunguela Amadila. Namibia, a country of 2.5 million people, located in the west coast of southern Africa. The country has the second lowest population density in the world, in part due to the large desert footprint, as well as being the driest country in sub-Saharan Africa. Namibia is a fairly new country, having just recently celebrated its 32nd birthday. In 1990, Namibia gained independence from South Africa after difficult generations under German and then South African rule. From genocide to apartheid, the Namibian people have witnessed more than their fair share of violence and oppression. Which is part of why declaring independence in 1990 was so important. A fresh start, with a constitution rooted in the protection of human rights, including special consideration for women and people with disabilities. Namibia also became the first country in the world to incorporate environmental protection right into their constitution. But don't take it from me. Meet Paulus Metwandila a researcher at the University of Namibia with a special focus on gender equity. And I believe he's the first male voice in this season, which frankly is long overdue. Namibia is an African state uh, that gained independence in 1990. Um, uh, That means we are now enjoying three decades of uh, independence. And uh, we were colonized um, by first by Germany and then later by uh, neighboring South Africa here which was under the British all the time. Um, Namibia is a democrat state uh, whereby leaders are elected to, to power and had made provisions for multi-party. Uh, so we have several political parties that always take part in, in the elections time. Uh, and that, this is done ever after five years. Um, 
the country also um, um, inherited uh, a quite uh, um, skewed uh, gender inequalities uh, from the former colonial South Africa, uh, which had given quite a, a big problem after the country gained independence as the workforce was dominated uh, only by one gender, especially in managerial and uh, manager, managerial positions or leadership roles. So that's actually the, 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 the picture of, um, of Namibia. But after independence, uh, some, some years, uh, the country had made some strides in order to reverse uh, and address the gender inequities that have been in existence. Speaking of big strides, tell me about the Constitution. So uh, the Constitution is, uh, is committed to terminate all the discriminatory practices based on, on sex. However, um, uh, bearing in mind that the Constitution was adopted in 1990, it took time uh, for the uh, for the for the country to witness uh, some changes when it comes to a, uh, the issue of addressing gender disparities. Um, after we we gained independence, the country became a signatory to the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Gender Against Women, CEDAW in 1992. So I think this was also one of the steps that. Uh, in the long run, contributed to to, to the attainment or to to the uh, to the point of addressing gender disparities. But more specifically, what has worked for Namibia is the uh, adoption of the affirmative action, which was adopted in 1998. So, but in Namibia, the affirmative action was is 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 focusing on previously disadvantaged. Uh, population, and these are, we, pe- are women and people with disabilities. So those were people that were previously disadvantaged, um, and this emanated from the colonial era. Um, so after now we adopted the affirmative action, we have seen um, so uh, women taking up uh, uh, managerial positions in different organizations, although it has taken us at, at a low pace, and also political parties uh, uh, taking up, um, uh, coming up with solutions to accommodate more women in their leadership uh, uh, positions. Now, this is a big step. At the time of independence, Wealth and resources, like land, were largely concentrated in the hands of men. So achieving gender equity requires intentionally disrupting this. And of course, that is easier said than done. When it comes to the communal land, it has always been a problem. Because for a woman to own land, they could only acquire land either through their husband or through um, their fathers. And those that acquire through the acquire land through their husband, the land was taken from them once their husband are no more. So they they have been so some discriminatory practices that has been uh, happening in the past. But also after 
um, uh, I'm not, I think in 2007, the government acted Land Reform Act, which uh, also calls for an equitable distribution of land to both men and women. And as we speak now, uh, 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 traditional authorities, uh, traditional leaders who are the gatekeepers, they are being educated also to give or to distribute land to women who applied so that uh, women can also um, uh, get land equally. Because Namibia communal area is, uh, the population uh, who are there mostly are women. Because uh, uh, men live, urban, live remote areas, to urban areas in search of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 of employment. So women are the ones who are left behind to focus on uh, agricultural productions, which uh, is the backbone for uh, food securities in the, in, 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 the rural, uh, in the rural setup. So uh, the picture, as we speak, is, is getting to a better situation. Paulus and I got chatting, and a few times he mentioned this term that I never heard before, zebralist. So what is that? Zebralist is just a 50-50, because you see a zebra, it has different colors, uh, uh, black, white, black, white. So, and that implies to a 50-50. Zebralist. What a beautifully simple way to describe what is essentially affirmative action towards gender parity. Hire a man, then hire a woman. Hire a man, then hire a woman. But not just in hiring. This zebralist idea is also built into Namibia politics and its political parties. And because of this, Namibia's government is very close to gender parity. It's currently sitting at 44% women. Namibia ranks 17th in the world in terms of the representation of women in parliament. Canada, by the way, is 59th, with just 30% women. Namibia has both a president and a prime minister. The current president is a man, and the prime minister is a woman. And today, it is my distinct privilege to introduce you to her. Meet Namibia's prime minister, Sarah Kungoela Amadila. I was born during the period of my country's uh, colonial occupation by apartheid South Africa. I was born in a rural setting to peasant parents. And uh, as as an African child, I was disadvantaged twice. First, the colonial government was a racist government that was prejudicial against black people. And secondly, I was a female. And uh, the system of apartheid also equalized uh, all women to minors, actually. Even our mothers needed permission of our fathers or our our uncles, for example, to enter contracts. And uh, under those circumstances, the services were hardly available of any kind, whether it's education or health or access to clean water. But the political persecution that we were facing forced me to become politically active. And uh, before I turned 13, I decided to leave the country to go into exile in our northern neighboring state of Angola to join the liberation struggle there uh, under the movement that was spearheading the liberation struggle called SWAPO, 
uh, at that time. So I finished my primary school in a refugee camp in Angola under the care of Swapo and managed to get a scholarship to do my secondary school somewhere in West Africa, a country called Sierra Leone. And they came back to the refugee camps, uh, joined the military wing of the liberation movement, but uh, I, I did not um, participate in, in combat. I was not deployed to the military front. I did some administrative work in the camps and then returned to Namibia uh, at the age of 21 after having left at the age of, of 12. Uh, it was upon my return and after independence that I had an opportunity to, to go to university. And from there, the rest is history. I then joined politics. Prime Minister Kungaguela Amadila had an early start to her political career. By the age of 27, she was Director General of the National Planning Commission. By 37, she was the Minister of Finance. And then in 2015, she became the Prime Minister. So I asked the Prime Minister, thinking back to when you were 12 years old, in exile, would you ever have imagined that you would be Prime Minister one day? Not at all. In fact, I must say that when I was in exile, I actually never thought that I would live to see freedom. You know, Namibia was waging an armed struggle. We, we were fighting with guns against the most powerful army in sub-Saharan Africa. So I believed that freedom was going to come, but I never thought that it would come uh, in my lifetime, let alone to think that I would ever end up in any cabinet position, uh, forget about now the, the premiership. So I, I was driven really just by the determination to do the best that I can, even if I have to die trying, because that was the spirit that was inculcated in us. And when we looked at our leaders and our seniors, the sacrifices that they have made, many of them lost their lives, but they never gave up. So we were inspired by that. And everything else came, I would say, almost by chance. Wow, that is one heck of an answer. Kungonguela Amadila was appointed to many of the positions that she has held. The Namibia system allows the president to appoint people to specific positions. And once again, the zebra list comes up as an important organizing principle. In the case of Namibia, we have had women that have excelled in other areas of life. And these women have inspired some of us to become what we have become. And I believe that it is also the bravery and the, the persistence, the, the excellence of these women that has, you know, encouraged our leaders to believe that they should continue to empower women because women can actually achieve as much as men can achieve if they are given the opportunity. But there are still barriers. There are cultural barriers. There are still people who really are skeptical when women take senior positions, be it in, in politics or in business or in, in traditional communities, for example, there are still people that are, that are skeptical. Women still struggle to get access to funding when they want to pursue businesses. Women still struggle to get their goods into the market when they are involved in, in production. They are challenged to uh, uh, climb the ladder in the private sector, especially especially in certain sectors, such as the, the finance sector, for example, or the engineering sector. So there is a lot of ground that we still need to cover. And uh, I think some of what needs to be done is really to change the laws so that they support the empowerment of women. And in Namibia, for example, we have decided that when it comes to local authority, 
a minimum number of local authority councillors must be females on the list of every political party. And when it comes to the governing party, we, we are even more bold where we say it is zebra style. For every man, there is a woman. So if there are 20, there would be 10 men and 10 women. And they should be in a zebra style. If number one is a man, number two has to be a woman. So that the few positions that a party secures should be equitably distributed between men and women. We also have an affirmative action policy that provides for gender equity at the workplace. The Public Service Act also provides for preferential treatment of women when it comes to employment and, and, and to promotion. The Prime Minister spoke about cultural barriers that can stand in the way of making progress towards gender equity. She shared this powerful example with me about how making this progress can be difficult. There is this thing of our young girls who become pregnant before they complete their schools. In Namibia, we have decided to take the bull by the horn and say that alongside the sex education, to help our young girls to understand the consequences of certain behaviors, to also make sure that we put in place programs to protect them from sexual abuse by making sure that those that cannot afford are assisted financially to go to school. We also have a program where girls that become pregnant during the the schooling period are given an opportunity to come back to school. It was a very difficult decision because some understood it to mean we are actually encouraging young girls to become promiscuous, that they are no longer going to be, you know, nice girls because they know they can get pregnant uh, and still come back from school. But I'm saying that when these young people are not allowed to come back to school, they are condemned to a lifetime of poverty and they are children that they are going to have are going to be condemned to a lifetime of poverty and the country would be worse for it. They should be assisted to pick themselves up and return to school so that they have an opportunity to get qualifications and get jobs and raise their children to be healthy children and also not to be poor but to live a a quality life that is a, a dream of every citizen. And that is why we need more women in political leadership roles. But once again... Don't take it from me. We should be prepared to embrace the quota system in the political parties to say that every political party should have gender equity in their list of representation and that we should have a quota system in ministries of of government, in the public sector, in civil society, because women cannot be spoken for. People cannot speak on behalf of women because in as much as they may interact with women, they can never really be able to articulate what women want and what women feel, what women go through. So number two, they have a perspective to bring to the table. Secondly, I think there should be a deliberate effort to support those initiatives that benefit more women. Like I have said, it is not enough to promote growth. It is not enough to give support to small and medium enterprises. We have to be deliberate and say, these are the programs for women. As I have said, in Namibia, we have decided to say, not only are we going to reserve tenders for Namibian companies, indigenous companies, we are not only going to reserve tenders for small and medium enterprises or for young people. We also have to do it for women so that women are given you know, the opportunity to make an entry and and try to build themselves up. Uh, And thirdly, we have to specifically look out 
for those sectors that are predominantly women, like the informal sector. Because we just talk about the informal sector, but when you really go to these markets in Namibia, it is predominantly women that are there. So there is no way that you can empower women if we are not going to single out those activities that are predominated by women. And then we have to address issue of gender gender um, gap in, in payments. We are experiencing it in Namibia to make sure that maternity leave is a right that is there and that maternity leave is paid because when a woman is not paid during maternity, it means that they do not only lose the income, but they are also not able to be available to support this infant. It also means that if the family had two people working and this woman goes on maternity and she is no longer getting her pay, the entire family is worse off. When the child does not, you know, get the breastfeeding that they need to have for the first three months, they turn out to be sickly and the country pays for it. Because most of the time people say, we cannot afford to pay for maternity leave. We can afford to pay for maternity leave because we would recoup that savings from the expenses in the health sector. We would recoup that expenses from the repetition at schools when these children are stunted and they are malnourished and they cannot perform optimally. We would recoup it from improved productivity of labor when these children grow up to be, you know, uh, top performers at school and also optimal producers in the labor market. So there are lots of benefits that can be achieved. In the public sector of Namibia, we also have preferences for women. We say if you go for an interview and you have a benchmark to say maybe the minimum points should be 75%, but the top performer is 82% a male and the woman is 80%, the law says you take the woman so that you allow the women to make an entry into the public service and then mentor them through training programs and, and attachments and so forth to enable them then to succeed on their own. So we should never shy away from taking deliberate measures by feeling that we are wheelbarrowing women, as some people would like to put it. Okay, so as someone who was appointed to her role... How does Kungunguela Amadila respond to this kind of critique, the idea that she was wheelbarrowed in, or that being appointed with a quota system somehow means that she is less qualified? When you are appointed on affirmative action, you are not wheelbarrowed. You are simply just assisted to overcome barriers, deliberate barriers that are put there that are standing in your way of optimal progress. And you should feel proud when you have an opportunity through affirmative action programs and be the best that you can be and inspire young girls and young women to emulate you and even exceed your successes. Here, here, yes. Okay, so final question from me. Prime Minister, what would you say to a woman who is considering a path in politics? It can be intimidating, it can be overwhelming. There are probably some people listening to this episode right now who are in this boat. So what would you say to them? What's your advice? What I would say to them is that uh, first and foremost, all the laws that support women can be put in place, but women can never uh, achieve their optimal development if they themselves are not prepared to actually empower themselves, take the opportunities that are made available, look for these opportunities and be the best that they can be. That is first and foremost. Then secondly, it is okay to make a mistake. It is okay to fall. When you fall, even if people ridicule you, pick yourself up and continue 
forging ahead because you become better only when you learn from your mistakes. In fact, they say the, the best performers are those that were able to learn from their mistakes. If you don't make a mistake, it only means one thing. You never try hard enough. You, you don't stretch yourself as far as you can go. That's the only way that you, you would avoid making mistakes. So when you make a mistake, it's not because you are not good enough. It's only because you have set your goal very high. And that's good. Pick yourself up and you should continue. Thirdly, let us support one another as women. Those of us who have made it should hold the hands of those that are coming so that they, sh they should be able to not only come to where we are, but they should be able to exceed us. So I am what I am because the women that were before me were what they were. So they shouldn't feel that they were not the first prime minister. I am the first prime minister because they were the nurses. They were the teachers. They were the social workers. They were the soldiers on the front that looked not so neat as we are able to become today. So I am the example of their success. They should be more proud of my success than I should be able to because I am where I am because I stood on their shoulders. And fourthly, I want to say to society, empowering women is not disempowering men. You know, when women ascend to position of power, we are not crowding out men. But when all of us can be the best that we can be, when all of us are supported to be the best that we can be, the world will be a better place we will achieve greater prosperity for all of us. So it is in our common interest as a global community to make sure that men and women are given the equal opportunity and the support that they need to be the best that they can be. Wow. Just wow. A country with such a difficult past, making an intentional choice towards a better future by addressing equity through its constitution. A leader who, as a child in exile, didn't think she'd live to see freedom and joined us today as prime minister, urging us to take up the challenge of addressing gender equity as the key to, in her words, achieve greater prosperity for all of us in our common interest as a global community. Like every country we have visited, I think Namibia gives us important lessons as Canadians, one of which is the stunningly simple way to articulate how and why gender parity can be achieved. The zebra list, balancing by alternating genders when hiring or choosing someone for a leadership role. At the end of every episode, I feel like there is just so much to unpack, some unique lessons from each place, but also some overarching themes and trends that appear borderless barriers to equity that exist everywhere. So now that we've taken a peek at concrete examples of what's happening on each populated continent around the world, we've got a lot of unpacking to do. There are 10 episodes in this season. Our last episode, called Canadian Arrivals, will focus back home in Canada on where we're at and what this all means for us. But before that, let's reflect on what we've learned. Join me next time to pull apart some of the big takeaways that we have learned on our tour. I, for one, can't wait. I'll see you there. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is produced by the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara, under the leadership of Executive Chair Anna Ganey. The music is by Meredith Iyanos. 
More information on the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca. The No Second Chances podcast has been made possible by the generous support of Margaret McCain and MasterCard.